Well, hi, I'm Adrian Albert, CEO of the Marketing Directors, and you're listening to Real Direct. In this series, we'll be speaking to great minds about the future of residential real estate. Joining me now for one of our inaugural episodes is Bradley Silverbush, Senior Litigation Partner at the prominent New York City law firm of Rosenberg and Estes. He's one of the most respected trial attorneys in New York City with unsurpassed practice in owner representation and real estate issues. He's a Manhattan resident who is well known throughout the real estate industry as well as the court system. And I can tell you, he is an avid litigator who just doesn't let go until he wins. Mr. Silverbush. Yes. I have some questions for you today. I'm here to answer your questions. Well, one of the questions I have is how has the legal process changed since COVID? You know, when COVID first hit March 13th of 2020, I can remember because I was in court that morning and everybody was racing to go home and the following Monday, everything started to close up. I don't think anybody, especially me, thought it would be as long and as dark as it turned out to be. It wasn't long before I started receiving calls from many landlords as to their commercial tenants because it it hit the commercial tenants harder than I think it hit anyone else. And there were issues involving people who wanted to give up their property, people who couldn't pay their rent, people who wanted their rent negotiated, renegotiated. In the residential arena, there were people who were simply disappearing during the middle of the night. And some of my bigger clients' buildings, they told me stories of of 10, 20% and, and greater vacancies they were forced to endure during most of COVID. But, you know, fortunately, as you know, the market has bounced back, but unfortunately so have interest rates. And there's been a lot of changes as a result for a long period of time. Our clients couldn't sue guarantors for promises they made to owners and developers. And it was a real mess. But the good thing that came out of it is the court system realized they could function virtually, remotely. And it wasn't until I guess somewhere around the second year that everything started to migrate to a a virtual court appearance. And as a result of that, uh, many cases now are are handled virtually. So there's been some good things that have come out of it. So do you think that that's going to be the way of the future is remote litigation? It should be. It's not in all the courts and not in all the forms. Certainly it seems to be the prevalent way of proceeding in state Supreme Court. Some judges still insist on a personal appearance, but it saves clients a lot of money because instead of sitting in a courtroom with, you know, 10 or 20 other lawyers waiting for your turn to argue, you have a specific time. You don't have to spend an hour to travel to court to fight traffic. It's it's a win-win, I believe, for the clients and for the courts. So I'm in favor of it. So you're active in all phases of real estate. What is the most prevalent legal problem in real estate development today? In real estate development, I would say the lack of any sort of incentive for developers to do anything. As you know, the 421A program expired. Our current governor was elected on a platform where she promised but hasn't delivered on a replacement. And as a result of that, you know, what incentive is there for developers, especially in a market where the interest rate is so high, to go out on a limb and develop a new project. There's really very little incentive for anybody to do anything. In the residential market, 
the problem is how does the landlord even make ends meet uh, with the 2019 legislation that the democratic legislature and government championed they went a bit overboard without realizing it they had their first opportunity in years and it's understandable that they would do whatever they could to change the law to favor tenant protection acts and, and programs but in doing that they did away with the major capital improvement program which allowed a landlord to recoup some of his expense. The, the example I'm fond of mentioning is, is if you have a rent-stabilized tenant who's been in an apartment for 20 years and they move out after 20 years, under the law prior to 2019, a landlord could put in new cabinets, new floors, new fixtures, uh, renovate the bathroom and kitchen. By the time it's over, put in $40,000 worth of renovations into that unit and recoup 1 40th of that cost by building it into the new base rent. So the rent would go from $1,000 a month to a $2,000 a month, which is still well below market. But the point is it incentivized landlords to fix their units. And because of the law that did away with that as part of the 2019 HSDPA, I've heard estimates as high as 40,000 units are being held vacant by owners who don't want to rent their apartments for such absurdly below market rents in hopes of there being some change in the legislation. So that's that's the problem for the residential. That's a, that's a big problem. What laws are changing beside the landlord being able to recoup expenses? What else do we have to be aware well, of? You know, I, I'd say one of the biggest issues, of course, is the requirement of making buildings more environmentally friendly, which in and of itself is not a problem, but the idea of, for example, retrofitting buildings to go convert from gas to electricity is uh, extremely burdensome, especially to the, the smaller and mid-sized owners who may not have the funds necessary to make that conversion. I think a, a forward-looking proposal would involve a, a grandfathering of, of certain buildings and, and building in certain safeguards. I don't think the solution of forcing buildings to retrofit so that they can dispense with gas and convert to electricity is really going to be very helpful. I agree with you. I know people who are being forced to convert and they simply can't afford the costs of new electric panels, new risers in their buildings. I think it wasn't well thought out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Where are legal issues heading? Is there more litigation now than before? So if you were to break it down in terms of pure volume, I would say it's, it's fairly clear that the volume of litigation, of cases involving real estate issues of one kind or another, either landlord-tenant or development issues, foreclosures, I think the volume is way down, at least in my experience is way down, but the complexity is way up. And ah. going back to your last question, the, the problem is it has become so time-consuming to litigate a case because the system is, is slowed down it slowed down for the first two years of COVID. There's a huge backlog of cases. You know, the judiciary itself has changed somewhat. When I first started in the, in the 80s, judges were very much precedent following. You know, you, and that's what the judges are supposed to do. They're required to follow whatever precedent has been set down by the higher courts. Myself and my colleagues and many people I speak to find that more and more cases are not being decided by precedent. Instead, they're being decided by politics. And more often than not, it's the personal politics of the judge that's deciding the case. 
this is a, an actual example. Uh, recently, one of my colleagues, Alex Lekionis, won a, a big federal court case involving a guarantor who owned hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was a huge win and involved a, a guarantor who defaulted. When we brought a similar case against a different guarantor in, in state court, the state court judge said he wasn't obligated to follow that precedent and refused to follow it and didn't grant us summary judgment, which we believe was a, a mistake and we're taking an appeal of that decision. And ultimately we were cautiously optimistic that we'll prevail, but I see more and more cases being decided by judges based upon their, their personal opinions. So this is a definite change. Yes, yes, a definite change. So years ago, it was very difficult to extract a tenant in New York City. Is it still difficult? It's become more difficult than ever. You know, as part of that whole 2019 legislation I mentioned a few minutes ago, a number of additional safeguards went into effect. For example, to evict a residential tenant who's been living in the unit for a couple of years, notwithstanding the fact that the lease has a commencement date and expiration date, you're nevertheless required to serve a specific notice, depending on how long they've been in possession, to inform them that you're not renewing your lease. You know, that's all well and good for, you know, most of our clients who have multiple buildings and are familiar with this and stamp with the law. But every once in a while, a smaller owner comes to us with a case and they're unaware of the change in the law. It's somewhat nonsensical because what is the purpose of sending a notice when the lease itself has an expiration date? So they come to us with a situation where the lease has expired and they want to bring a case and we tell them, well, we've got to serve a 90-day notice before we can even bring a proceeding. That's a tough situation. Uh, also, the laws have become somewhat loosened with respect to accommodations, reasonable accommodations or reasonable modifications in both the residential and business tenants who make have a legitimate need, for example, a CNI dog or something like that, have always been able to request a reasonable accommodation. But we see now it is being abused by people who will go to the internet and for a $25 fee, obtain a certification that their dog is a emotional support animal and that the tenant is required to have. You can go online now and consult a therapist for a one-time fee who will then write a letter saying that their patient is uh, suffering from psychiatric issues who will benefit from having uh, the following accommodation granted. So that's been somewhat problematic as well. And, and the city, state, and federal agencies that do the investigations have made it so onerous on, on landlords because they know that it costs a small fortune to, to litigate these cases. I had a case just a few years ago where a shareholder in a co-op said they needed an accommodation to have this dog because the dog had been trained to retrieve the shareholder's medication. And uh, that case was being prosecuted by the United States uh, mm. Department of Justice. So I'm going against the U.S. attorney defending this co-op because the dog is somewhat problematic. And during the deposition, it came out that she wasn't on any medication. I asked her, well, didn't you sign an affidavit that attested to your need to have this dog because the dog had been trained to retrieve your medication? She said, oh no, I just meant if I was on medication, <laughs> the dog could retrieve it. And I said to the U.S. attorney outside the deposition, I said, you know, you should really discontinue this case. 
And his response was, well, we don't judge the merits of the case. And if you are right, the jury will find in your favor. Knowing full well that it's going to cost my client a couple of hundred thousand dollars to proceed with a jury trial, jury selection, complete the trial, closing arguments. You know, it was a business decision. And ultimately, we settled the case. But we see very often that these agencies, the New York City Commission on Human Rights, New York State Division of Human Rights, and the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development will utilize the resources to, to their advantage. So that's, that's a problem for owners as well. That is a big problem. Given the large number of foreign buyers in New York City, what pitfalls can be avoided? Looking at it from the developer's point of view, you know, we see people coming here who, you know, think they're going to take advantage of the market, but they don't really have the expertise. They don't go to someone like you or they don't hire the right attorney or they just use an attorney that someone else mentioned to them. I can't overstress the need to have people around you who have experience. The naivete of some of these people is, is really stunning. You wonder how they accumulated such wealth in the first place. But it all starts with two words, due diligence. <laughs> you have to do your due diligence and you have to retain the right people for your due diligence. We're very fond of saying, if you're not gonna spend the money on a good attorney who can spearhead that due diligence for you, then you have no business being in the deal because you're going to make too many mistakes. You don't know if if the property presents any hazards. You don't know if there's a cloud on the title. You don't know if there's a lien on the property. There's a multitude of serious problems that, that face developers. Some of the concerns that also come up are those that relate to diplomatic immunity. When you have foreign investors investing in developments, the law is fairly clear that foreign diplomats and foreign nationals enjoy a certain amount of immunity in this country. And you have to be very careful in trying to work around that. So due diligence is, is essential. I think that's great advice. Thank you. Where is the action going to be in the next five years in the five boroughs of New York? Where do you see the seeds falling? That's always a good question, you know, trying to predict the market. And I know you've been very adept at doing that. The clients that we share have always told me how good you've been with being, being able to do that. It's not an easy thing to do, and it's not an easy storm to weather. You know, we have the whole gamut of clients at, at the high end. We have clients who have properties in, in the Brooklyn shipyards and, and other uh, areas that are able to hold them, you know, are able to continue the carrying costs until things turn around. You have people like Durst and Solo who, who, who have positioned themselves to be able to do that. You have other people who over leveraged themselves in this, into a situation where they just, they're at their wits end and many of them have to sell at a huge loss in order to avoid being foreclosed upon. And those who don't do that usually end up losing everything. So uh -huh. a lot of it is going to depend of course on what the governor does with the long-awaited replacement for the 421A program. I believe eventually something's got to give. There will be some sort of abatement program, tax abatement program to incentivize developers. Hopefully interest rates will come down. And I think that combination will start a new cycle where we'll see things pick up uh, drastically. And we'll be, you know, it'll be a boom. 
Yay. Uh, (laughs) We love a boom. We love a boom. (laughs) Is there any new technology that makes your job more difficult? I'm ahead of the curve, especially for people of my generation. I'm very tech savvy and I, and I tend to stay ahead. I, I was reading up on AI before anyone knew what AI was, at least in terms of the legal profession. And my opinion is any advances in technology are beneficial. I, I haven't seen anything in the way that's harmful. The increase in uh, bandwidth, the speed in which we're able to communicate over the internet, the clarity of the feeds, the, the sound audio uh, have all made virtual appearances that much easier. And as I said at the outset, it's technology has just been great in terms of advancing our ability to try cases and to handle appearances. Well, that's so, great to hear. Yeah. Can closings happen remotely now? I don't see why they can't be done remotely. I know from my own personal experience in, in selling a house that all the documents are signed in advance and given to a lawyer so that uh, I don't need to be appear. I know the attorney has to be present. I, I suppose there will be some situations when you're dealing with maybe a, a second tier bank or a third tier bank or uh, somebody who might be a little bit sketchy. And, and, you know, you always have to be concerned with fraud of one kind or another. But I think we're heading in that direction. Interesting. I remember years ago, there'd be stacks of paper, right? You know, two feet high and right. multiple signature copies and notaries and so that would be great if it could be done remotely. How do you deal with remote notarization? What if you, what if somebody does have to get something notarized? So throughout the pandemic, the legislature saw fit to enact a law that allowed for remote notarization. So for the better part of three years, that was the standard practice. And I'm, I was a little surprised that they let the law lapse and they didn't renew it so that today as we sit here, my secretary cannot notarize a signature from a client who sends it to us from New Jersey. I'm not sure why they they didn't extend that. They should have, in my opinion. What do you wish developers would think about before they embark on building a new building? You know, I I don't want to sound like uh, any of the anti-development groups, but, you know, as you know, one of the big concerns seems to be with whether or not a particular proposed development will blight a neighborhood. With some of the high rises along Central Park South, I know there have been groups opposed to the shadow that would be cast on certain neighborhoods. I happen to be a huge fan of the skyscraper. I think it's beautiful. I think that's part of what makes the Manhattan skyline what it is. And I favor the city's requirement for setting aside plazas and public space. I think that's been huge. I know some of our clients, like the Durst organization, have taken the, the lead in lead certification, you know, uh-huh. making their buildings environmentally friendly like they did at One Bryant Park. My answer is to consider the neighborhood, consider how they can bring some character to their building and, and at the same time serve the interests of the people who either work or live in the neighborhood. How did the city get into the current situation that we find ourselves in today in regard to the 2019 legislation, mostly the HSTPAB, expiration of 421A, and there's probably one or two others in there. 
Yeah, what, the one of the two others is probably the uh, elimination of luxury decontrol. Oh, luxury decontrol. Yeah. I forgot that one. Prior to 2019, the legislature had passed a set of laws that allowed for what they called luxury decontrol. And essentially, it really did not affect that many units. But the statistics have been hidden, and the public's been led to believe that luxury decontrol sounded the death knell of rent regulation. And, and nothing could be further from the truth because the way luxury decontrol worked is essentially it only affected two types of situations where you have a extremely wealthy tenant, uh, yeah, extremely wealthy tenant who's occupying a rent regulated apartment and is paying a very low rent. Typically, you're talking about $1,000 a month, $1,800 a month. Initially, I think the threshold was $1,800 a month. They raised it to 23, then 25. I think at the highest point, it was $2,700 a month. And in a situation where the rent was below the threshold, but the landlord was able to do renovations to get it over the threshold, the first tenant to rent that apartment subsequent to it coming above the threshold would be no longer rent regulated. So it didn't result in anybody being evicted. And the second situation was where the household income was of a certain level. And, and the way they determined the household level is by the New York City Department of Finance would verify what the income of the household was. And if you think about it, we have a very incongruous situation here in New York City. You have people who need rent regulation, who really can benefit from rent regulation, and who rent regulation was designed to protect. Typically, it was a result of a World War II, when we had all the American soldiers coming back, returning, and unscrupulous landlords were trying to take advantage of that by jacking up rents to the point where nobody could afford to, to live. At the, and the legislature responded by introducing rent regulation. You know, if you have people who are not able to afford to house themselves, the government has an obligation to step in to help those people. I don't think anybody could really argue with that. If you have a a family of five in a two-bedroom apartment, you know, the rent should be regulated. But by the same token, a person who maybe has an income of 750000 a year or a million dollars a year, who lives in a rent-controlled apartment that he inherited from his mother, who might be paying $200 a month, I mean, what's wrong with that picture? Owners should be able to apply to DHCR to have certain units, particularly those that are occupied by wealthy tenants who don't have a need for rent protection to have those units rent changed in some way, at least to, to allow the landlord a reasonable return on its money. And that's the biggest problem with rent control. Rent control goes from generation to generation. So if, for instance, I lived in a rent control apartment, let's say I lived in a two bedroom unit that was $1,200 a month. And I have a family member who comes and lives with me for for two years, and then I decide to move out, that family member would be entitled to succession rights. And, you know, we have succeeding succession for generations in some cases, and it's, it's been very unfair to landlords. Is there any pending legislation that we should know about that would affect residential, particularly real estate development? Well, there's, there's a big case making its way up to the United States Supreme Court. 74 Pinehurst is, I think, the main plaintiff and involves a challenge to the HSTPA. And it claims that that law 
resulted in an unconstitutional taking of landlord's property without due process and other violations of constitutional rights. Very political decision. It's not much of a surprise that the Second Circuit, which is the New York State federal court, that area that hears those appeals, uh, ruled against the owners in that case. And uh, eventually that'll go up to the Court of Appeals where it will be an interesting decision for sure, especially with the change, change of the composition of the justices there. There is a hope, a hope that maybe they could strike down portions of the HSTPA, which we believe are unconstitutional. Is there any advice other than due diligence that you can give to a developer first entering this marketplace? As I suggested, other than the due diligence, you need to hire an attorney who know. and this is not a plug for me, because you know, we're just one of several top real estate firms in the city. I'm fond of saying, you know, there are several that are as good. I don't believe my personal opinion that there's anyone better. If you don't have the right attorney, you're, you're just bound for trouble. It's kind of like the analogy I like to make is, would you go to the dentist to have your appendix taken out? Because they're both doctors, right? And we know the answer to that. One. And if you wouldn't go to a non-real estate expert to handle your due diligence or to advise you, it's just fraught with peril. I really appreciate the time. I know how valuable your time is. I could talk to you all day, but I know that it's going to cut into your work schedule very quickly. So to learn more about Bradley Silverbush and Rosenberg and Estes, please visit RosenbergEstes.com. And to learn more about the marketing directors, please visit TheMarketingDirectorsInc.com. I'm Adrian Albert. Thank you for listening to Real Direct, Elevating Residential Real Estate.